Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. Pretty much impossible to exaggerate when you say that love is an incredibly popular topic in culture, in media, art, literature, music, it always has been. So to find an entire chapter in a book as large as the Bible um, with so many references to the idea of love shouldn't really surprise anyone. Um, I sometimes make cracks about the love chapter, you know, Paul's writing this letter and then decides, oh, we need something to read at weddings, so I'm going to stick this right in the middle of an argument. Uh, But even though I make fun of it in that way sometimes, it's actually a legitimate use of this great passage of Scripture that Christians would turn to God's Word for something that defines what it is that we mean by love um, rather than just a romantic notion uh, when it's understood. Um, Way back in our series last fall, we posted... uh, We talked about the ever-popular church mission statement, love God, love others. That was just incredibly, all kinds of churches were using that. It it actually is a good summary of what Jesus described the Ten Commandments as being that we've been looking at in our catechism, you know, love God, love others. But you can say that, and everybody in a room will be nodding their heads. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what it's all about, love God, love others. But those same people in that room, all nodding their heads, might have completely different ideas in their head of what the word love means, of who this God is, and even what's the definition of others in that statement. Well, our passage this morning just happens to be uh, an inspired section that helps us really understand what the love part in that simple expression really means. So we're going to take a couple of weeks and try to convince each other that a major goal of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn should be that we become increasingly, increasingly become a loving church. And nobody needs any convincing of that, so perhaps uh, what we mean by the word loving will be our focus for the next couple of weeks. And and, and word loving in a loving church. And uh, so I'm going to read the passage And uh, then we're going to, we're really only going to have time to cover about half of it this morning because we have a lot going on. And uh, it was a passage that I didn't really want to rush through. So I'm going to start with the last line of chapter 12. Remember, this is an argument or a presentation Paul's making about spiritual gifts and the problem in the church in Corinth of people kind of elbowing each other out and fighting over who's more significant and looking down on others because I've got this gift and you don't and or thinking poorly of themselves. I don't have this gift, but you do. And uh, Paul's like, hold on a minute. And in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts, he jumps into this. And uh, so he says, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. 
It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So before I go on too much further, I want to give one of my famous overall advanced recognition uh, bracket quotes. Uh, sometimes I come across an article or an old book or a chapter, and its influence is just too big on what I'm going to say for a sermon or two to be able to fit in everything that's a quotation and everything that is not. And, and there's a, a book that's over 125 years old, written by a Scottish pastor writer, this man was greatly influenced uh, as a young man by the famous evangelist D.L. Moody and his campaigns in England, and that had a big influence on his life. And his name was Henry, Henry Drummond. And he's famous for many things, but one of them is this uh, little book called The Greatest Thing in the World and Other Addresses. And uh, if you'd like to borrow it someday, I, you can borrow my copy when I'm done with it, but I, I have to wring out as many uh, quotes that I'm ideas I can rip off as possible in the next two weeks. From Mr. Drummond, I learned a Latin phrase, because I'm not a big guy when it comes to Latin, but I came across this Latin phrase, summon bonum, which translates as the supreme good, the supreme good. We could ask, you know, what good are spiritual gifts? What good is a Christian church congregation? What good's a Christian? What good is life itself? And all of those things we can answer with all kinds of things that are good about all of those different and important things. But what would be the supreme good? The highest use of any of those things. The highest achievement of any of them. You only have one life we hear and repeat and say often. Uh, you can only live it once. Well, what's the best choice you can make in how you spend that one life? What's the one ultimate focus you could have for your entire life that you know will never be a waste? <laughs> you know, when everything else is measured and weighed out and evaluated, you won't have wasted your life on something that wasn't ultimately worthwhile if you focus on this one thing. In evangelical churches like ours or, or Protestant churches in general for the last uh, few centuries, you'd almost come to believe that the, the ultimate, the sum and bottom of all would be faith. You know, we talk about it so much, uh, the primacy of faith for something as important as justification by faith, 
you know, thinking about how a person is saved, uh, how you'll have one leg to stand on on judgment day. You know, we, we read elsewhere in scripture, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And God's the one person that you don't want to be unpleased with you, especially on that perfect day. So, so faith is so important. But just after Paul's mentioned faith and hope, the hope that it provides, he says this, the greatest of these is love. That's pretty big. That's a pretty big statement. And that's not just the personal opinion of one apostle either. Love wasn't just Paul's strong point. Uh, it actually is a great example of sanctification, something Scott talks about often in our catechism. If you think about Paul's life you, and how it started out and where he was at the beginning of his testimony, love wasn't his big deal, wasn't his big thing. That wasn't his one idea. We can see a process in Paul's life where he starts out where he doesn't, he's not a person hesitant at all to use vicious violence in order to accomplish his religious ideals. And God kind of intersects in his life, and Jesus reveals himself to him. And, and even though Paul was this vicious persecutor of the church, that same guy later in life can write this letter about love, and people can take him seriously, despite his past. There's an example of sanctification that Paul would even write something like this and, and put it in his letter uh, coming from him. It, it's also, um, it, it's, it's also uh, as I said, he's not unique among all the apostles. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't his strong point initially. It definitely wasn't his starting point. But Peter once wrote this in 1 Peter 4.8. Most important of all, Continue to show deep love for each other. Other translations say fervent love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. You think about the Apostle Paul, uh, a short, sorry, the Apostle John. He's, he's often described as the Apostle of love because he writes about love so much in First John. But early on in his career with Jesus, he was connected with another guy called Sons of Thunder. At one point, he's like, Jesus, they're, they're not even, you're not even listening to what we say. Are you just going to call down fire and brimstone on these guys and wipe them all out? But later on in life, as John grows in his faith, he, he becomes known as the apostle of love. And he writes things like this. And this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. He goes on to say, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. We, I talk so often about our focus at Renaissance being to display Jesus as the center of all life, and I don't often get to the next couple clauses in that statement. And one is we do that through thriving relationships with one another. That's what John just said here in 1 John. When we love one another that way, God's made manifest in us. People end up being able to see something of God through the way that we love one another. Um, so Paul's not on his own. And uh, despite this chapter, um, you know, Paul, a lot of people often think more of Paul as like some kind of strict professor of, uh, of doctrine and theology, you know, really strong on law and gospel, which he is. But a lot of readers don't consider this line often enough from from uh, the book of Romans, where Paul wrote, Owe nothing to anyone 
except your obligation to love one another. And he says this, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. We've just been looking at the Ten Commandments in our catechisms, right? We could whip through them quickly um, and, and be able to understand how that works, how if we really love, we'll fulfill God's law. If you love God with all your heart, you won't even need to be told to not have any other gods before him. You'd be too busy singing his praises, uh, something like the Sabbath. You'd be pretty happy to be able to lay aside all the other responsibilities and things that you have to do to put food on the table and just have this day to rest in and praise God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You'd, you'd be happy to do something like that. A person who loved wouldn't even be thinking of not honoring his parents. He wouldn't be thinking of harming, let alone killing his neighbor. He wouldn't be stealing from others or, or lying about them or to them. If he, if he found that his neighbor had something really pleasing, he, he wouldn't be envious of it. He would just be glad that his neighbor had such a thing, and he'd be rejoicing with him. Love is the real motivation for obeying God's commands. They really do reflect what loving God and loving others looks like, which is how Jesus summarized it and brings us back to that idea of condensing the Ten Commandments down to love God, love others. And the Ten Commandments explain to us who this God is and what does it look like to love him. It gives us, they're like love instructions. And you can look at them in that way. Love is the rule for fulfilling all the rules, the new commandment for keeping all the old commandments. Uh, my friend Mr. Drummond called it Christ's one secret of the Christian life. And uh, speaking of my friend Mr. Drummond, he divides the poem into three sections, which I'm going to borrow for it from him over these two weeks. We won't get up through all three today, but they're, they're love contrasted, love analyzed, and love defended. Well, contrasted with what? We're in this letter where uh, Paul is seeking to direct a church back to her true calling. Uh, he contrasts love with a lot of things that these people in the first century in this city of Corinth were particularly drawn to. Uh, their one thing was something else. The, the thing they really admired, the, the thing that they thought was the summon bonum, if I got that straight still, um, it was something else. And Paul's trying to bring him back, you know. He's uh, in... in uh, their particular situation, we, don't, we won't spend too much time here about the inferiority of the things mentioned compared to God's love. Those things are pretty self-evident. And he talks in the early part of the passage about speaking eloquence, prophecy, ability to search the depths of God's mystery, having incredible knowledge, and faith to move mountains, even massive generosity or self-sacrifice. We've all heard from the smartest guy in the room in social situations where his primary love is hearing himself speak or, or using his eloquence or knowledge sometimes to tear other people down rather than build them up. And the professional speakers of Paul's day, they were famous for that. You paid good money or, or paid good money to bring someone in and see him compete with another orator and, and they would compete and they would try to out-argue one another and the guy that everybody would get the applause for would be the one that shredded the other guy with his superior eloquence and his knowledge. We've all seen that kind of thing. Love's greater compared and contrasted greater than charity, generosity. There's a great deal of charity without love. Uh, again, my friend, Mr. Drummond, I'm going to read a longer quote from him. It took me a while to figure this out, so try to stick with it. And he wrote this for those of you that 
are too young to remember pennies, copper, small amount of money. He uses the word copper. I don't want you to think he's talking about police. But he says this, it's a very easy thing to toss a copper to a beggar in the street. It's generally an easier thing than to not do it. Yet love is just as often in the withholding. We purchase relief from the sympathetic feelings roused by the spectacle of misery at the copper's cost. And here's what he wrote. It's too cheap, too cheap for us and often too dear for the beggar. If we really loved him, we would either do more for him or less. How is love greater than faith? Well, because the end is always greater than the means. And uh, we need faith to connect our soul with God. And and, uh, what's the object of connecting our soul with God? Godliness, being able to be sanctified and, and uh, growing back into that image of God and man that God intended for us. And when we become more godly, what, what are we going to become? Well, we already read that line from John where he said, God is love. <laughs> so the godliest person you can imagine would also be the most loving person. With the right definition of love from our scriptures, we're going to get to that. If you're becoming like God, we've already heard that God is love. Faith is the means. Love is the end. You think of the sacrifice and martyrdom angle here in the beginning. We follow uh, testimonies and life stories like uh, our friend, the young missionary David Vandenbroek, that used to be in our Sunday school back in the day, and many of you support him as a missionary. At this point, we heard from David and his wife giving their testimony just on their last furlough and uh, all of the work and and all of the sacrifice that they have to go through to try to learn this complicated language. And it's going to take years. So we think about missionaries like David. We think about their sacrifice. Some people, many through 2,000 years of church history, have found missionary service to be fatal. It's literally cost them their lives. They paid the ultimate sacrifice and, and we rightly remember them in a big way for that. But think of those people on the mission field where David is in these early years where he doesn't even know the local language. Well, I know from his testimony here in his report and what I know of David in, in, as a young man, he's still been communicating, even if he doesn't know their words. Even if he doesn't have the vocabulary, his actions of love have been paving a way for future communications. Imagine if he spent these early years just being a complete jerk, just showing up in that context and just being a real jerk in the way that he treated people without the uh, language to do it. Uh, They'd be able to tell, you know, like uh, treating them as if they existed to serve him, um, treating local neighbors with contempt. By the time he could speak eloquently, would anyone even be listening? Just think of how crucial the acts of love are in in advance of the words. And Paul says here, without love, any missionary will return from the field having gained nothing. What would be the point of all that sacrifice to gain nothing? So what is it then? If love is so important, now we're kind of getting to the analysis, and we're only going to do half of this section. You know, let me analyze this word love with Paul's words. Uh, 
Again, uh, Mr. Drummond, he was actually really famous for being a natural scientist. And some of the books that he wrote were just on the natural sciences. So uh, unlike me, he naturally went to a science uh, illustration and he used the prism and the whole idea of light as it passes through a prism. I had to review what that was all about. I remember playing with them in science class and being told not to drop them and quit fooling around. But really, you look outside and, and there's light. That's why I can see the portable or I can see the trees. And to us, it's invisible or we would call it white because we see right through it. But unbeknownst to us, every color of the rainbow is in that light. So you use this device, a prism, you shine light through it, and all of these different, they're called frequencies, all the colors of the rainbow are, are traveling at different speeds, and when they go through the prism, they kind of get bent, and then all of a sudden you can see all these colors. You can see all of these colors. Well, Paul's not going to be talking about eight or nine different things over the next couple of weeks as we finish this passage. He's going to be talking about all of the elements um, that are in this whole idea of love. So we can kind of take them apart and look at them one at a time, but they're all part of this one beautiful thing called love. It's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. What's love's spectrum? If you look at the Bible in front of you or uh, up on the slides, you'll notice that all of these things that he's going to describe next pretty much have common names. They're things that can be practiced anywhere by anyone, no matter what their means or status. You don't have to have a lot of money to do any of these things. You don't have to be considered important um, to be held in high esteem by anybody. You can practice all of these things no matter what your position or sta status in life. Another way we could say it is the ultimate thing, love, is made up of everyday opportunities. You're also going to notice that every one of these things in the spectrum are relationship dependent. You can't have a life in pursuit of the ultimate thing alone on a desert island. Whether that desert island is physical, geographical, or if it's one that's emotional and social. You gotta be in relationship. That's one of the great things that a Christian community gives you. <laughs> the opportunity to practice what's most important in life, God's love. They, they involve past, present, and future. So, so uh, as you think about these elements, whatever happened in the past, whatever's happening right now, whatever might happen in the future, none of those give us an excuse to not practice and work on all of these things. None of those things, past, present, or future, give us it out. So let's look closely at verse 4 and following. I'm just going to try to consider the first half of these beams of color. And then we'll return next week and finish the chapter. First one's patience. Patience is just the normal attitude of love. Love's not in a hurry, like my words are this morning. It's ready to do its work when it's summoned, but, but it's enduring. It has a long wick. Other words in the Bible are, are things like bearing all things, being long-suffering. To be patient requires maturity and understanding. And, and these things provide the ability to wait. I got a warning here for you, though. The digital world that we live in will not help you develop patience. It's not going to help you develop patience. In fact, I think it's a big part of why we're increasingly becoming more and more impatient, because we're used to everything coming to us so fast and so easily. I, I recently, just in the last week, changed my internet provider, and I saw my internet speed increase more than 20-fold. 
And I wasn't even looking for faster internet. I was just, if you know me, I'm just looking for cheaper internet. And I found it. And it just happens to be so much faster. And I'm like, why does it need to be that fast? I mean, at this rate, pretty much soon the internet's going to be answering my questions before I've even uh, had the time to think them or ask them. I can't help but think that the speed that we expect work and business transactions to take place, the speed we expect to travel, none of those things are really going to help us develop patience in our relationships or in our parenting. But love is patient. Love is patient. It's not in a big hurry. Love is kind. Or we can say kindness is love. Um, again, to give credit to Mr. Drummond, his book asked me this week if I've ever noticed how much of Jesus' life was spent in doing kind things. And he wrote it this way, in merely doing kind things. If you reread the Gospels with that in mind, you'll see that Jesus spent a great deal of time actually making people happy, doing good turns to them. Holiness is more important than happiness. But you know what's not in my control is the ability to make anyone holy. That has to come from God. I can't make someone holy, but God, for some reason, has given us gifts and abilities to be able to make people happy. Um, we do that primarily by being kind to them. If all people are saved or not, are God's children, how great is the opportunity that we have to bestow kindness on the children of God? You can't please everyone. You can't make everyone happy. But you can give pleasure even if it's not returned. You can love others with kindness for Jesus' sake, even if it's not going to be returned or appreciated. I know one thing, it will be powerful. Uh, and not in maybe in the short term, but again, love is patient. So keep being kind and keep being patient. Love's generous. Uh, I get that from it doesn't envy. It's, it's, not in con it's not in competition. You know, just try maybe in the next two weeks, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a more loving person. I'm going to just try to be this giant love machine at, that, at my church congregation, and I'm just going to love on everybody. You know what will happen pretty soon? You'll find somebody else that's doing it better than you are. And then suddenly your ego will kick in. And, and, and churches do that with the church down the road. And before you know it, you're kind of envying. And, and love is not envious. It's generous. Um, it, you can imagine being a member of that congregation in that culture that so admired rhetorical skills and the ability to argue and present your case and display your Greek knowledge of all of the classics and all of those things. And, and you're in a congregation like that and and let's call a guy Fred. Fred's the local baker, but he just seems to have this gift for being able to communicate. And then you find Fred all the time is the one at Bible study or in a conversation that's able to bring God's word into the thing and everybody strokes their beards and, you know, their hearts are affected and they think, wow, thanks, Fred. Once again, thanks for opening God's word to us. And you think to yourself, how come Fred gets to do that all the time? How, how, what's, what's with that? How come I don't get the chance to do that? Well, you know, and before you know it, you're, you're envious rather than what should you have been in Corinth. You should have been praising God that God gave your congregation Fred. 
that he provided this thing that you needed so that you, as a congregation, you could grow toward what God called you to be as a church and, and just thank him for his gifts. The same could be said about leadership, helps, wisdom, any of them. Love's not boastful or proud. In, in a word, it's humble. Old translations have it, love is not puffed up. When I was uh, much younger, a friend, I remember a friend uh, described a guy, and he said he always has his paycheck on his tongue. And it kind of meant he was always bragging about how much money that he made. And, and I, I thought about that, and I thought about how we can be using our spiritual gifts, supposedly, for the greater good, and then we end up running around telling everybody about all the good that we did. I think churches are also on a, on a tricky ledge when um, they want people in their community to know they exist. That's a good thing. Right? If we want people to know about Jesus and the salvation that's available only with him, you've got to have connections. You've got to be able to have conversations. You've got to be able to connect with people somehow. And so acts of kindness are a great way to they build a lot of those bridges. So, so that could be pretty good. But before you know it, you're not giving the cup of water to quench thirst. You're doing it to build your brand. And in most cases, you can't do a loving act completely anonymously. That would be the idea. Well, then do it anonymously. Well, you can't always. Sometimes you're in the room when you do something loving. In fact, most of the time you will be. But once love's done its work, um, it doesn't have to hog the spotlight or the stage. You don't have to write articles boasting about what you've done. Again, my friend Mr. Drummond wrote, after you've been kind... After love has stolen forth into the world, I love that line, and done its beautiful work, go back into the shade and say nothing about it. Love hides even from itself. Those are just the first three things describing these colors that come through the prism. We're going to leave the rest of them. And then the defense of why love is so important for next week. But I've got a little bit of an application already that's going to work for both messages. I've got some homework for you this week. I, w- I want you to reread this chapter a number of times. It's so familiar, but fight through the familiarity. Read it in a bunch of different translations. Think about this description in the middle. Love is kind. Love is patient. All of these things. Read the qualities. Here's the common way that's usually been done, though. I've heard this application many times. It's like, okay. Take those descriptions in the middle, take out the word love, and put your name in there. And then you're going to read, you know, I'm going to pick on Art because he's visiting today. And he loves to be, he loves people to notice him anyway. (laughs) Art is patient. Art is kind. Art is not envious. And before you know it, you'll realize what a miserable wretch you are. And and, uh, you'll fail. That's how it's usually used. Jesus' name is the only one you can really put in there and have it work. But, and, and, and that's not a bad practice, because love is humble. I, I read a story about uh, Oscar Peterson this week, and he was already a piano prodigy, and his dad had him listen to a record by a guy named Art Blakey, I think. And Oscar Peterson says he heard that, and he said, I gave up the piano for about six months. <laughs> he says, I was never arrogant about my abilities again after that, right? So there's good in that. But Paul didn't write to a girl named Corinth. He wrote to a congregation. So here's what I'd love you to do as you go over this passage in the next week, is take out the word love 
and put in Renaissance Baptist Church and read that and think, Renaissance Baptist Church is patient. Renaissance Baptist Church is kind. Renaissance Baptist Church is humble. Renaissance Baptist Church keeps no record of wrongs. Renaissance Baptist always hopes. Think about that. Um, think about this. We might not have 100 volunteers to run a kick in Sunday school. We might have not have enough people to run a proper nursery at this point. We, we might not have hundreds of thousands of dollars to support multiple missionaries. We might not even have the manpower to uh, uh, do a number of things that we would love to do. But what is there in the world that could prevent us from continuing to be able to grow in love, to be a more loving congregation. Will you spend time reading chapter 13 this week and use it as a lens to imagine the future of our church congregation and your part in it? Let me close in prayer and we will meet around the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience, your kindness toward us, all of the things that Paul's telling us are part of this incredible word, love. We were reminded this morning that the greatest of these is love. And what greater love is man than this, that a man would lay down his life for another. And that's what your son Jesus did for us. Lord, we pray that as we become more godly, as already been pointed out today in the New Testament, that would mean we would become more like Jesus. And uh, we would become these things in this beautiful chapter from your word as a congregation. Even. Pray you would prepare our hearts now, even as we meet around the Lord's table. Be reminded of the solution that uh, you have had since eternity past for our inability to be these things, that uh, we could be made right with you, that we could receive the Holy Spirit and be enabled, have your, your law written on our hearts and be able to truly love God and love others because of what Christ has done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.